Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Handel. Our theme this month is one that should be of concern to everyone. What happens to an infant born to an incarcerated mother and the impact of that birth, not just on the mother, but ultimately the baby? I came across an article in Atlantic, Atlanta Magazine while reading the Marshall Project, a news feed that I get uh, devoted to our justice system. And the article featured an organization in Georgia, which is called Motherhood Beyond Bars. I reached out to the executive director and founder, Amy Ard, and she is our guest today. So happy you could join us, Amy. Let me fill in a little bit about your background for our listeners. You started a nonprofit called DC Birth Doulas, the largest doula agency in Washington, DC. You bring 21 years of experience with nonprofits to motherhood beyond bars. Georgia is your home state. So welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Harriet. I'm really honored to be here. Good. We're pleased. I'd like you, if you would, to read the vision statement for motherhood beyond behind bars, uh, beyond bars. Would you do that for our listening audience? Sure. Our mission, motherhood beyond bars ensures a healthy start for infants born to incarcerated women by providing a network of comprehensive support for mothers and caregivers. We support and strengthen families with the goal of long-term healthy reunification and a permanent end to cycles of incarceration in families. Okay. In Georgia, every year, 50 to 70 women give birth while in prison. Five million children in the United States have a parent in prison. That fact puts these children at risk. Can you expand on this idea further? What what are those risks? I think one of the most important details when we talk about what the impacts of incarceration are on infants and children is that we don't know a lot. And we don't know a lot because um, as one of one of the researchers in this field says, we count people that count. And for most people in the United States, incarcerated people don't count for much. And so once we have physically removed them from our communities, put them behind impenetrable walls where we can't find out much about what's happening to them or what their quality of life is or how they're doing, we simply forget about them. Unfortunately, there are people on the outside of those walls for whom the incarceration matters a great deal. We here's what we do know about infants and children born to incarcerated people. We know that they start with the deck stacked against them. We know that they are more likely to have a mental health diagnosis through in their lifetime. We know that they're likely to have more trouble learning in school. They're more likely to have interactions with the criminal legal system throughout their life. And these we can account for a lot of other things, socioeconomic economic status. But um, we have been able to identify that the incarceration of a parent is the um, the likely culprit 
for a lot of those issues that the children has a child has in their earlier life. There's something called the adverse childhood experiences, and oh, yes. you can go through a list of adverse childhood experiences and check them off. And we can almost take the number of check marks that you get on that list and identify kids that are going to have problems in their lives. One of the uh, check marks that you make on that list is the incarceration of a parent. And every single child in our program is born with that check mark already on their list because they were born to a woman who is currently serving a sentence. Right. We have absolutely talked about that before, and I'm so glad you brought it back because I, I don't really think you can emphasize enough that, that uh, adverse childhood experiences uh, checklist. It's very, very critical and important. Tell us about your history in terms of founding um, Motherhood Beyond Bars. How did you come to do that? I, um, I have a history of starting things, although mm -hmm. I'm really careful when I talk about this, is that the work predates my, my starting the nonprofit. So a, a group of people were called Motherhood Beyond Bars, and um, I did not found the work. I expanded the work. I made the work into a nonprofit. But Motherhood Beyond Bars existed before I entered the scene. Um, I, my background, uh, I went to divinity school. I have a master's in theological studies. I knew that I did not want to be um, what people consider technically in the ministry. That was never something that um, interested me. But I've always been really interested in the ways that people of faith changed civil society. And so I went to Washington, D.C., and I was working for a nonprofit there that worked on kind of progressive um, religious social justice issues. And then I got pregnant and I had a, a baby in a birth center in Washington, D.C., and there was a doula present for my birth. And when she left the room at the end of the night, I decided that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to watch babies before. And, hmm. and I wanted to do for other women and other families what I felt like this woman had done for us. And I uh, just began reading childbirth books, like even more than I did when I was pregnant. And hmm. I became a childbirth doula very quickly, about four months after my child was born. Um, I went through the training and I attended births and I felt very satisfied. It was a very hard um, lifestyle. You're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was attending a birth in a downtown Washington, D.C. hospital. Um, my clients paid me very well to attend births. Um, and I walked out to get my clients some ice chips. And um, when I opened the door, there was a gurney in the hallway on the labor and delivery floor and hanging off the side of the gurney was a pair of handcuffs. And it was an image that just stopped me in my tracks. Uh, mm. it, the last thing that I expected to see on a labor and delivery floor. And as I was trying to make sense of that image, the door of the room next to the room I was working in opened up and an armed officer walked out. And <clears throat> it occurred to me in that moment, really for the first time, that you could both be pregnant and be incarcerated and that you would still have to deliver a baby and what that must be like. And I assumed that if that woman had been handcuffed on her way into the hospital, she was likely handcuffed to a bed um, in the room with an armed guard by her side. And um, that that um, was something that I couldn't reconcile with my understanding of what childbirth was supposed to be about. 
And I came home that afternoon and told my husband, I've just had this experience and I want to, I want to learn more about it. And I started doing reading. I read um, uh, a lot of books and discovered that my home state of Georgia was a place where it was still legal to shackle women during birth. And over the course of a year, my husband and I made the decision to move back to Georgia, where I was from, moved into the house that I was born in with my mom and my three children. And he is an attorney um, and had worked for Atlanta Legal Aid in the past and wanted to go back into direct legal services. He's now the executive director of Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. And I started looking for ways to start a prison doula program for women who were in prison um, I wanted to be by their side. And in the process of trying to figure out how to start that organization, I met Bethany Kotler, who was a student at Emory School of Public Health, who had gone in to teach childbirth classes in the prison. And the women in the group had named their their group Motherhood Beyond Bars. Mm. Everyone says Motherhood Behind Bars. It's, yeah. it, if I had a dollar for every time that happened, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't have to raise any money. <laughs> Um, but the women was there. I really like their hopeful horizon was always outside. It was always beyond the bars. And so we've kept the name that the women gave it. And we have, um, when I met Bethany in 2017, she was on her way to Harvard to get her PhD to work in this area, subject area. And I said, Hey, if you give me that name, I will take good care of it. And we will build out programs. And that was um, 2017. And we have been growing ever since. Hmm. Um, I wanted to have you back up. Um, tell us, for those who may not know, what is a doula and <laughs> what's the training for a doula? And what do they what do they do? Well, doulas have, I imagine, been around since the, the time, you know, the first woman gave birth and there were other people around her to help. Um, they are non-medical support people present um, at different stages of the childbearing year. So mostly childbirth doulas help pregnant people um, in their pregnancy and then through the delivery and then a short period of time afterwards. There's also something called a postpartum doula, which helps families acclimate to their, their new normal after the birth. Um, but I was a childbirth doula, so I worked directly with the pregnant uh, families and um, was present for the birth. We don't provide medical care. So there are midwives who do that, or there are obstetricians that do that. And we're generally hired by the family to provide constant um, support throughout that process. Doctors come and go out of the room, nurses come and go out of the room, midwives come and go out of the room, but we were a constant support and we offered information um, to the families so that they could make the most informed choices for themselves. We offer um, support, physical, emotional support. Um, and I think we had a certain expertise in, um, in, supporting, in supporting women through that process, helping women do hard things and finding the courage to do it. And it was so... It just it rocked my world to believe so deeply in the power of of women to to give birth and to be supported in that process, and then to realize that there were women who were chained to beds without any family support present, much less a doula. Like their partners couldn't be there, their mothers couldn't be there, and um, they were literally giving birth alone. In some cases, chained to a bed, 
And if that was happening anywhere in the world, and I had like a little iota of time and energy to um, attack that problem, I felt really compelled to do that. That's great. I'm glad you explained everything. Um, now, what happens um, after a woman gives birth in terms of, you know, her her status as uh, an inmate? What what happens then? It's different in, in different states. So I think that's important to point out. Every Department of Corrections in every state has a different policy and a different way of doing things. So I can speak about the experience of women in Georgia prisons. And um, in Georgia, all women are held in one small facility. They give birth at the same hospital until quite recently, mothers and babies stayed together for two hours after birth. And then the moms and babies were separated. The babies went to the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU, and mothers went to what they called the inmate floor, which was in the basement of the hospital. And mothers were supposed to have an opportunity to visit with the babies in the NICU, but that was always dependent on whether they had staff there to take the mother up, up for those visits. In the last year, um, we advocated pretty strongly to have um, moms and babies be together in the postpartum wing. And they are now um, being given 24 hours together before that separation occurs and the babies go to the NICU and the mothers go to the basement. Um, which is certainly better than two hours, but really a far cry from ideal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I would guess that many, many listeners don't have a background regarding the whole issue of women coming into prison who are pregnant. How big a problem is this for Georgia and beyond? Uh, is Georgia different than other states? And do you have any numbers or statistics mm -hmm. to explain the problem or the issue? I'm gonna, I, I will refer back to my original comment. Uh, okay. We count people that count. <laughs> and um, True. we our statistics about who's in prison, how many of them are there. Um, in some sense, it, it's, it's a guess. We're doing some guesswork. There is a Carolyn Suffren, who is a researcher, wrote a book called Birth Care. It's a phenomenal book, but she um, did data gathering on the number of pregnant people in prison. About 4% of the women coming into prison are pregnant um, at the time of their incarceration. Georgia has a higher number of pregnant people coming in than a lot of other states. We still have no idea how many pregnant people are in our county jails. In Georgia, we don't count the number of pregnant people in jail. So um, we know that that is often a first stop for people in their incarceration journey. We know that some of them come home um, and don't go into, don't get sentenced to the prison system, but we don't know much more about them. Sometimes they find us. Um, there are 150 something uh, counties in Georgia. That's a lot of jails. Um, <clears throat> um, so unless they find us right now, we don't have any data collection efforts in the state of Georgia that help us reach out to them. And, um, you know, if there are 50 women giving birth in the state prison every year, we know that there are a whole lot more in our county jails. And I also really believe that any um, 
for a lot of the women coming into those jails, 80% of them are the primary caregiver of a dependent child when they go into the jail. And we know that even a short period of separation of the primary caregiver from her children can have a ripple effect on families that extend well beyond the period of time that the mother is incarcerated. So in incarcerating pregnant women and, and mothers, um, even in jails for a week or two, can have a big effect on families. Sure. And then when you think about the state prisons, how many, how many um, state prisons for women are there in, in Georgia? There are four, um, there are four prisons four. for women. Um, and then there is the, the prison, which is called Helms Facility, um, which is where all pregnant women are held in the state prison system here. And there are men and women in that facility together. It's a medical facility. They're separated on different wings. But um, for men who need dialysis or other kinds of maybe sometimes cancer treatments, they're brought to this facility. It's close to a hospital. Uh-huh. And in terms of um, any kind of, of care uh, after, well, before they deliver and after, what, what's mm-hmm. that like? Do you have any idea? Well, the facility where women are um, is a is a medical facility. So they're nursing. There's nurse. There are nurses on staff at the facility, um, and they are also there's a contracted obstetrician who comes and provides all the prenatal care at the, at that prison. If women have a high risk pregnancy, they're sent out for additional um, screenings and care. Do I have concerns about the quality of the care? Yeah, yes, I do. I mean, we, we have women that contact us and what they describe to us are symptoms of preeclampsia, um, hypertension. I ask them what their blood pressure is and they have no idea. They haven't had their blood pressure taken. I mean, things that are just like OB 101 standard, um, standard things. Um, the amount of information they have about their own health is very limited. So they, even if they're getting a blood pressure taken, they may not be told what it is. Um, concerns are not taken seriously. I think a lot of the officers think that women are trying to game the system and get out to go to the hospital for a break. But every once in a while, the issue is real and it is um, worth a trip to the hospital and they don't get that um, like they would if they were outside and had a had an, a relationship with an obstetrician. Um, one of the interesting points that Carolyn Suffren makes in her book, Jail Care, is that if you, women who are in carceral settings, their outcomes for their pregnancy are often better than they are for women outside of prison. and if you account for like their access to healthcare and their their access to um, doctors. And what that means is that, I think the point that she makes is that even a little bit of prenatal care makes a difference for women. And we, instead of offering that prenatal care to women outside of prisons who may not have access to it, there are 50% of the counties in Georgia don't have an OB in them. So, it's not like you can just, you know, not everyone's living in downtown Atlanta where there are a lot of obstetricians. So what we've basically done is taken a bunch of poor women and locked them up and given them like the basic prenatal care. And then we act very pleased with ourselves that we haven't had a whole bunch of women and babies die. What 
what we haven't accounted for is the impacts on families from that incarceration. We're just pleased that everyone's alive. If we could provide that same prenatal care outside of prisons, not separate mothers and their babies and provide just a modicum of a safe landing, landing pad for them, how much better would our outcomes for those kids and moms be down the road? And that's the piece of information we're missing. We don't know what the, all the impacts are of that separation on the family 10 years down the road. Now, it, so you had said earlier that there's so much in terms of numbers uh, that you don't have a handle on. Um, it, is that um, being done now or will be done to have a little better idea of the, this, this whole picture? Well, twice in the state of Georgia, we have introduced legislation that tried to get data collection from the jail level, and twice that legislation has failed. Mm -hmm. So I am hopeful that, you know, maybe third time's the charm. Maybe. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, it, it's always been written into other pieces of legislation. So we were successful in passing an anti-shackling law in 2019. There was a bit, there was a line in that legislation that said, uh, we needed the actual number of, of pregnant people in jails, and they took that out at the last minute in the last vote. So we, they didn't have to they didn't have to count those or report those. Um, so our data collection efforts have been stymied. In that case, it was the sheriff's association that was the lobbyist against that. The Department of Corrections does report on the number of pregnant people in their custody. Those numbers are often incorrect. Um, they put them on their website. I will just say, you know, for 18 months, they counted a pregnant man. And oh. that, that was not a progressive take on gender identity. That was just a mistake that they didn't catch for 18 months. Every month they, they issued this report. And for a long time, there was a pregnant man that they were counting. Um, so it didn't, it didn't leave you feeling like yeah. their, their data reports were 100% accurate. So it certainly would be helpful to have a, a grip on on all of this, uh, all the things that you've just spoken about in terms of uh, of numbers, not not just for Georgia, but certainly across the uh, the, co the country. Mm -hmm. um, very few prisons um, that I know about allow a baby to remain with their mother after birth for any length of time. I know of nine uh, in, in different states. Um, is, is that accurate as far as what you know? Yes, mm -hmm. that's about right. the right number. Okay. Between seven and nine, I think I've read seven, something, but that's about right, yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Well, what, what I'd like to do is delve a little deeper into this with you. I, I know you said you would come back and talk to us again uh, next time so that we, we get, you know, an even bigger picture of, of uh, the issue that we've been talking about right right now. So um, we'll we'll pick it up where where we leave off today. And um, I'm so very glad that you came here today because we have never in, in the three years I've been on the air, we have never spoken about this topic. And it's certainly something that tugs at my heart. Um, and I know that it's going to reach our listeners too. Very important topic. So um, please do return. And, and I, I would like you to 
give the name of your organization and maybe there are people who would like to donate since you are a nonprofit. How, how would they do that, Amy? Well, the easiest way is on our website. So okay. motherhoodbeyond.org. So motherhoodbeyond.org. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. So you can oh, read good. more about our work there. We, um, we post fairly regularly, but all donations can be made online. They're tax deductible and we sure would appreciate it. And it's been an honor to be with you today. That's Thank great. you, Harriet. Thank you, Amy. And we'll see you next time on Pursuing Justice. So please join us. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.